Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. Ladies and gentlemen, uh, can I please have your attention? Goldberg, host of the Remnant Podcast, brought to you by the Dispatch and Dispatch Media. Come by, check things out, kick the tires, light the fires, yada, 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 insert more groveling here. Um, so uh, I just felt like after a lot of abortion talk and a lot of other things of, of, of weight um, and, and tension, that we needed some conviviality on this podcast. And we are also overdue for some, from just some truly rank, rank <laughs> punditry. Um, I just heard a piece on NPR the other day about how they had a trash parade in new Orleans to protest. Cause you know, in new Orleans, whatever it is that you're protesting or doing if funeral, have a parade birth, have a parade, stub your toe, have a parade. And so they wanted to have a protest about the trash situation in New Orleans, which does sound hellish. Uh, there is an enormous, basically trash pickup in big parts of the town has not happened since Hurricane Ida passed through. And everybody has emptied out their fridges because they had no power. And so all that food is rotting and mm. moldering in the dank, sweat, pant, ball fog heat that is New Orleans. and um and and i only bring this up because i'm looking for a metaphor that can give a, enough effulgent illumination of the true rankness of the punditry that we are about to commence oh, wow and and that brings me of course to my friend and colleague uh christopher starwald christopher welcome back to the podcast with a with a setup like that, welcome to the garbage parade. I I am I I, I I'm so proud. I, I've never been prouder because I was deciding what topic that you that you and I would get sucked into for 45 minutes that would destroy everyone's happiness and good feelings. And I'm glad to know we're going to just pass on that and go right to the garbage parade. That is yes. American politics. Welcome to the garbage parade. And look, I mean, I I think listeners know that when I talk about rank punditry, um, all I'm saying is that we're just going to do punditry and, and, and whenever i say we're going to do rank punditry we end up not doing rank punditry anyway but when i say rank punditry i don't mean that it is like bad i mean that it is it's it's like just the uncut unstepped on peruvian flake of inside the beltway thumbsuckery analysis that is just part of our job descriptions that we've got to do sometimes. We're not going to get into immunitizing the Ashkenazim. <laughs> We're not going to talk about how, you know, Tenzing Forgay got, you know, railroaded out of his reputation. We are going to go straight to the, you know, the margin of error exit poll wallowing. And, um, and I'm not even sure we will. I'm just rambling because I'm tired and I'm, no, but it's, I started it's, day drinking already. 
it's a it's an important uh it's a more imp- uh punditry rank punditry of the kind you described is a more important part of my job than it is of your job because i have to work hard intentionally to stay away from policy not entirely but in so far as i can because i am interested in and have devoted myself to uh the winning and losing of elections uh and what causes these outcomes i uh, i i was a politics editor from the age 28 to age 45 uh that's the part it is um it is below and beneath uh these other considerations but it is important in its own way and i also find and this is very true and you can see it uh, open any newspaper app look at anything if you do too much policy it will cloud your politic your political analysis in it's just unavoidable because you wish casting will enter in and it enters in for me but it will always enter in so you got to keep the chocolate out of the peanut butter um yes and keep the gemeinschaft out of the gesellschaft that's important oh yes um <laughs> so um let's start with something you've been writing about a little bit of late um as as our friend and colleague uh david french um um evangelicals huh what are they good for <laughs> and we're talking about this purely in a cephalogical analytical sense not that they aren't one can't be wonderful people aren't wonderful people all that kind of stuff but like as a as a political term how useful is the term well first let me say to add on to your um hosannas for the dispatch uh, if you're not reading all of david french and you don't have if you if you're trying to figure out what's going on in American culture and American life, especially uh, if you want to know what's going on in the American church. If you're not reading all of David French, uh, you know, if for what, what do they say in the ads? For the price of two cups of coffee a month, uh, you, you could uh, be reading all of David French, who is indispensable, and everybody ought to do it. So David and I noted the same thing, which was there was a Pew study. They took a bunch of pre-existing data and chopped it a different way. And came up with the fact that Donald Trump had grown the evangelical movement in the or that the evangelical movement had grown in the era of Donald Trump, uh, and that more people indeed were identifying. Now we should we should state for matters of understanding, um, <clears throat> one in five American voters have self-identified as an evangelical since the 2004 election. Uh, it's very, it's very static. So we're talking about things that are not big in terms of that America is becoming a more evangelical nation, but, uh, that is big inside. If, if you're David and I should, I should say in the spirit of dull disclosure, there was a time I would have considered myself an evangelical Christian. Um, but that, you know, you know, but I I don't mean to interrupt, actually I mean to interrupt, but you, I, I want you to return to that thought, but it occurs to me maybe we should just define what an evangelical is. So that's what I tried to do in my column this week. Um, and, and I came to the conclusion that now probably nothing, but where it started. So the word evangelical has a long history, uh, in the church. It, uh, certainly, uh, the Wesley brothers and the, um, the, the revivalists of the, of uh, the 18th and 19th century identified as evangelists because they were trying to, demonstrate that their faith was, or that their ministry was outward facing, that they were focused on evangelizing to the fallen away and to the lost. Uh, And they were, they were focused on the lost sheep uh, and bringing them into the fold. So as, but it's exclusively, I mean, I, 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 
I've known some people who call themselves evangelical Catholics. I'm going to get there. I'm okay, coming. I'm sorry. I apologize. I apologize. I, I don't, I'm I coming. I'm coming. I'm coming. So <clears throat> in the United States, in the 40s, 50s, there was a new birth of fundamentalism, which focuses on stuff. And I mean, certainly it was a fundamentalist streak was always there, but fundamentalism uh, relates to the stuff about, I can tell you how old the, uh, the earth is uh, because we did the math on who begat whom uh, in uh, the Pentateuch. And we can, we can do all of that stuff. Um, and so there's, if you think about it this way, Billy Graham and others popularized the use of the word evangelical as a via media between the growing fundamentalist movement. Uh, you can see, see that in some sects of the Baptist church, Jerry Falwell, others, uh, uh, between those folks and the dying mainline liberal Protestant denominations. So it starts out as a, as a Protestant thing, but as in the eighties, it grows in popularity and more and more people start understanding that it basically means a Christian who is into a, a traditional understanding of the scripture and charismatic modes of worship. So this, this comes to be a self-identifier for these are people who are rejecting the frozen chosen establishment, but not, but are not telling you that the that they can calculate the day that the Earth was created. So this goes along, and then we pollsters and uh, uh, forecasters and data analysts find the term, and it works because it answers a question: Who are these people that, as mainline Protestant denominations collapse, who are these people that are going to these mega churches uh, or not going to church at all and watching and listening, uh, but consider them part of this. So this was a useful thing until 2016. And then it stopped being useful because uh, the McCormick effect, and you were the person who taught me about the McCormick effect, the, uh, uh, so, the social psychology version uh, of the Heisenberg effect from science. Uh, if you observe something, you change it. And what we have found in what we found in the the nationalist populist era of the Republican Party is people have taken this label for themselves irrespective of its relation to their faith, right? So you could say that nationalist now uh, or that um, uh, evangelical now means nationalist or it now means very conservative or it means whatever. But there's a very there's an increasingly low correlation between identifying as an evangelical and going to church. There's an increasingly low correlation between uh, that and and believe and, and preaching and believing the good news, which tends to be a very squishy and touchy feely. It's a very love kind of thing. And mm -hmm. if you're into what uh, David calls angry Christian nationalism, uh, it, that's not going to answer. So my point is, it's time to ditch the term because we have other ways of getting to that information. And it doesn't mean anything anymore. So, that's, so but church that's going versus not church going is still useful, right? Well, church. So there's a lot of questions that we could think to ask that would produce what evangelical produces, which is to say, 80% of respondents are going to about 80% of respondents are going to be Republican voters, mm -hmm. or rather to say that out of the uh, out of an electorate, 80% uh, of the 20% who are self-identified evangelicals, 80% are going to vote Republican. There are a lot of groups that vote 80% Republican, like Republicans. Uh, there are a lot of groups, you could say, very conservative. There's a lot of ways to get to that share of the electorate. And the problem with 
evangelical is since it doesn't mean anything particularly anymore or its definitions are fungible. So we care about definite. So terms like, you know, if you are Catholic because you are a member of the Roman Catholic Church, you know, if you are black, you know, if you're white, you know, that if you are, uh, you know, that what state you live in, you know, how much money you make. Those are fixed things that you know or do or are. And evangelical is like party identification or ideological identification. It shifts and changes over time. Right. It's just not that helpful anymore. And it doesn't mean what it meant. Um, and this is just a side note, but like, it's not useful, but it's not, not useful in the way that Catholic is not, not, is not useful in this, in the sense that when people talk about the Catholic vote, Catholic vote splits pretty evenly, right? Well, Democrat, the we, Republican. The way we do, the way we do that, of course, is you have to, you have to separate out. And this is, this gets tricky because and you and I have talked before about the meaning of whiteness and how our definitions about what white is chain have changed over time and are going through a period of change now because of a lot of uh, inner ethnic marriage and blah, 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 blah. But the traditional way of dealing with the Catholic vote is white Catholics and non-white Catholics because the Hispanic influx into the Catholic church in America uh, has shored up the numbers of the, 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 the percentage of Americans identifying as Roman Catholic is pretty much the same as it was in 1970, let's say. Mm -hmm. Whereas the number of mainline Protestants uh, dropped from 30% of the whole country down to about 10% of the whole country. But the, the stability in the number of Roman Catholics in the United States is substantially due, or, uh, or large, largely due maybe even, to an influx of Hispanic voters. Now they vote, or Hispanic congregants, they vote differently than white Catholics. So you have to split it out that way if you want to make it useful, but at least it is fixed, right? Uh, at least it is a thing. You have to be a Catholic to identify as a Catholic. I can wake up, like in my lifetime, I have would have definitely identified as an evangelical Christian, though I was a member of a mainline denomination. I would have, I would have said, yeah, I'm evangelical, meaning via media, uh, serious about it, believe in the supernatural components of my faith, uh, but am not going to calculate uh, the, the, the date of creation. Um, and I would have said that. I, w I don't say it now because of the political connotations of it. So a couple things. One, for listeners who don't know the phrase via media, it just means the middle way, but you can't see Chris is wearing a bow tie. Ah! And so he feels like he needs to use phrases like that, which is fine. <laughs> um, you are the, I said, secondly, like in part, given that I spent, over 20 years at national review with people like Catherine Lopez and it smells Romero. like incense over there. Yeah. Um, uh, the way I am more familiar with, with, with sorting, sorting Catholics is good Catholics and bad Catholics. <laughs> right. Um, or real Catholics and fake Catholics. I mean, that's right. the stuff I've heard a lot about. Um, but also I've asked other people this, I always get interesting answers, but never the, rarely the same answer. What do you think the explanation is for the different connotations in American public life between saying someone's a Roman Catholic and saying they're a Catholic? Because they're the same, they denote the same thing, but they have different frequencies to the ear. 
Um, so, I mean, is there such a thing? I mean, maybe I'm theologically you, blinkered if, here, but I don't believe you, there's any such thing as a like non-Roman Catholic Catholic, there, unless there we're is. talking about schism, Eastern Orthodox, weird sex in Middle East kind of stuff, right? And you don't even have to go there. Eastern Europe will will deliver on that. If you wanted to go, if you wanted to go granular, super granular, right. but the reason for Roman Catholic is not only that it points to which specific church you're talking about, the church in Rome, uh, the, 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 the sect based in Rome, but also all Christians are supposed to be small C Catholics, right? Mm -hmm. The Nicene Creed, when the, 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 the founding of the, the church as we know it, just so uh, you know, we all play in the applause sound, sound effect for Nicene Creed <laughs> in post-production. So don't worry hey, about it. Thank you. That it always drives the kids wild. Um, <laughs> But the Nicene Creed, uh, that we believe in one holy Catholic, small c, apostolic church, to mean universal, right? So right. The, the, my joke with my many Catholic friends is always to say, the difference between Protestants and Catholics is that I am pretty sure that you're going, I believe that you're going to heaven, uh, you're not so sure about me. They capitalize the C in their, uh, in their liturgy this is the one and everything else is wrong. Whereas uh, Reformed Christians say, we're all in, um, except for the Lutherans who dislike the Catholics enough that they change the word to be, I forget what it is, but they're, they, they draw a line. They don't want any confusion, gotcha. but that's how it goes. But I get all that. But like in, in American life, like let's put it this way, I take it as a proposition that the average political reporter at the New York Times doesn't know a lot about religion. And the reason I believe this to be true is that in my experience, <laughs> it is often the case that the religion reporters don't know a lot about religion. So I have to assume that the political ones are even a notch down. I, I don't, I don't want to, I don't want to knock you off your topic, but to illustrate the New York Times religion piece about the atheist, uh, culturally Jewish chaplain at Harvard uh, it fully, fu fully fulfills uh, right. exactly what you described. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And, um, uh, but it seems to be a convention in American elite journalism to refer to like Joe Biden as a, you know, the, only the second Roman Catholic president, but in a normal, uh, otherwise it's not like when they're talking in polling, they'll say, and among Roman Catholics, they'll just say among Catholics. And it just, so there's a weird distinction of like, we now mean like serious Catholic that I think the theological points that you're making, which I, I agree with entirely. I don't, I just don't, I don't feel like that's where the usage comes from. Well, I feel like it's some other weird convention in our language. It, that, uh, I, I think it is. I think it can be. I know how I know how and why I use it, um, as I explained to you. Yeah. Um, but I think there are other reasons. One could be, <clears throat> and this would be the old the old way to remind people of the church in Rome. And we know the stories about when uh, JFK was running for president, uh, and American, then still a plurality mainline Protestant country, uh, said, uh, "Will he be loyal to the Constitution?" Or the church in Rome, uh, because Rome, uh, you know, if 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 Italy or Southern Italy uh, is has always been foreign and uncomfortable for people of Northern European stock, 
then this was a way to, to point to that, that he may be Irish, but maybe he's a vassal of, of the pontiff. Um, there's that part. But then there's this other part, and I think this goes to what you're talking about, which is <clears throat> that's its name. Right. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. That. So. So. I think if you're trying to add, if you're if you're talking in higher, floofier terms, that you throwing Use in the, the full official, title, the yeah. official name of the yeah. thing. That's if fair. you're trying to add some augustness to it. So, um, if evangelical, mm-hmm. as a term, is not particularly useful anymore. Um. I don't think you answered this question specifically. I think I tried to ask it and then I distracted you with the shiny things. Um, what, what term should we use to shed light rather than heat on these divisions in the, the voting public? I think you can get to it. I don't think it's a necessary term. I don't, and I, I, I think we need a replacement and I, I'm talking with, uh, our friend and colleague, Ryan Streeter and others about, you know, what now, you know, uh, mm-hmm. where, where do we go with this? Um, and there's two, e- the, the, the use of evangelical by people like me, people like you, people who are trying to talk about cultural and political changes in the country came out of the fact that it had salience within the church, right? So it has salience within the church and then people on the outside pick it up and use it. Um, the church in America has to decide what it's about, right? And the term evangelical is, is, is rotted in terms of its original intended use. Now it's going to mean something else, right? Mm-hmm. It's going to go on from here, but it's not going to mean the thing. So we, I think sort of like neoconservative, but I won't, I won't right. go down the rabbit hole. No, I promise. <laughs> you're, you're a hundred percent right. Um, and there, and you know, um, John McWhorter would tell us, a lot of people would tell us words evolve, right. And mm-hmm. that our language is not fixed and that things change and that's cool. Um, but to a certain degree, we probably have to wait for the Christians of, cause remember we went through a cycle on this. So there was born again, there was spirit filled, there was Pentecostal there, a lot of terms in, in the, in the great upheavals of the seventies, eighties and into the nineties. A lot of terms cycled through as Americans tried to figure out. I guess I put it this way: when the consensus broke and the bubble burst in the mid 1970s, uh, for a lot of things, there was a scramble to come up with new terms to describe these. Uh, evangelical was a successful outcome of that to describe a part of the church. Uh, it's not anymore, and we probably have to wait to see what Christians come up with to describe themselves. Um, so, so basically pollsters don't have a way of identifying this group in a way that is useful for craven political purposes at the moment or so, so here's, here's what I do. Um, I want to know things. I want concrete things. And the best concrete thing of course is how often do you go to church? How often, or, or actually, it's not even just church, religious services. If you go to religious services weekly or more, uh, you are real, real Republican, right? You, you're in a very Republican space. Uh, and here we're talking, you know, again, 80, 90%. Um, this is the high, high end. And then it drops down to people like me who miss sometimes, but go generally. Uh, and then you get down to people who go once a month or a yearly, or as we call them, 
the Christer Christians, Christmas and Easter Christians, um, and their their cousins, the High Holiday Jews. Uh, the for those folks, they're mostly Democrat. They're like 65 percent Democratic. Uh, so church going rates can tell us a lot, uh, and is not a subjective term that carries other baggage. So that part can address the religious stuff, but also as whites become more Republican, um, and start, you know, the, the, one of the big changes of the past decade, even before Trump, but certainly 2016 was a big inflection point for it is White voters did not used to think of their whiteness, or or maybe it'd be better to say, white voters were less politically uh, were less politically homogenous before, um, and tended to reflect more of the general swing of the electorate. Uh, but white voters now are have gotten more Republican, uh, and the and that is of course a product of the white working class shifting the 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 shift over the and I would say probably terminal shift over uh, for now anyway for probably for a good while uh, of those voters from the Democratic to the Republican Party so it's in part a change in attitude among whites but it's also uh, part of a, a long trend so that's a very long way of saying if I know you're a white dude <clears throat> I already know if if you're a white dude over forty. I already know the chances are are quite good that you are a Republican. Um, and if you just sprinkle in another variable, give me income, give me educational attainment. I'll tell you know my old parlor trick used to be was if you'll answer, don't tell me who it is. If, if you'll give me four questions, I can tell you your partisan affiliation. And that's that's still that's still pretty much true. So what's weird about that is I I, I get that I've seen a lot of those kinds of numbers, um, and. Yet, I'm not trying to do a Pauline Kale thing here, mm -hmm. but it sh shows you the effect that bubble, the, dis the, the, the distorting effects of anecdata and yeah. bubbles can have. Because, like, I feel that if you did that over 40 certain income level test in my neighborhood in D.C. and really in my old neighborhood in New York, it would not produce reliable predictions or accurate predictions of republicans no but that's because those are enclaves right right uh, where it works differently um so I mean, and, I, I and, guess, and similarly it would not work so if you were if you were to go to mccallan tech if you were to go if you were to go to laredo texas uh these uh, things would not apply in the same way that they do but taken as a whole right uh that's that's the trend and you know I, in looking at the California recall and I thinking, gonna, of, I was going to steer us there. So good. Yeah. And thinking about how the Republican party, uh, the, the, the grievous, um, dysfunction of the Republican party as the Republican coalition shifts to rely and they trumpet it, right? Kevin McCarthy is basically going to do, remember when Donald Trump was in West Virginia, he put the miners helmet on. Did a little fifth pump in the air. I'm waiting, you know, Kevin McCarthy to start wearing overalls uh, <laughs> to to the floor uh, and setting his lunch pail down. The Republicans have have decided that their future lies with the white working class. And if you read uh, what's his name, uh, the the uh, silly Billy from Indiana, Jim Banks, 
who is the head of the Republican Study Committee. All of the, everything they're saying is enough of these college educated squishes. Let's be the party of the working man. Let's be socially conservative, fiscally liberal. Let's be let's be the New Deal coalition. Like, let's get it. And I say, okay, cool. But you know who's really hard to get to the polls? Uh, Working class men. Men without college degrees are terrible at voting. Just the pits. Uh, uh, The most likely voters in America, and I don't have the data in front of me, but among the most likely voters in America would be women with college degrees. Man, you you can't stop them from voting. They will knock you down to go vote. But get, and and Democrats have lamented this for years as they got uh, whipped in the midterms. The guys who low propensity voters, dudes, who you might get to come out for a quadrennial election that everybody talks about for six months and it's the only topic and everybody's engaged in it. It's very hard to get them to come back out for midterms. They didn't do it for Obama. They didn't do it for Trump. They don't do it because they don't vote because voting's dumb and they'll let their wife or their ex wife or whoever do it for them. So. In California, the Republicans were freaking out about this mail-in uh, uh, recall, which is the dumbest thing I've perhaps ever seen. Even the terrible, terrible uh, Hiram Johnson, uh, progressive Republican governor of California, who helped get the dumb recall uh, uh, law in place in 1913, even he would have said, well, I don't know if we want to mail out an advertisement to everybody at home. <laughs> To recall the governor. I don't know if that's a good idea. And that's what they did. If the Republicans want to be the party of the working man, right, uh, and dropping their G's like Hillary Clinton at a black church, if that's what they want to do, then they better get hip to convenience voting and they better get hip to making it as easy as possible to voting instead of, oh my gosh, telling those same voters that the system is horribly rigged yeah. and that the only way that they lose is that. It's, the, it's just dumb. Um, no, I mean, it's like, there's, there's a thing in, I think a large proportion of men. Um, but particularly there's this thing in like underachieving 20 and 30 something men. Um, and I, I, I do, I plead guilty to having some of these genes myself where you come up with theoretical, hyper intellectual sounding rationalizations for your own sloth yeah yeah dig you know dig. <laughs> i'm a pro i'm a pro i teach a, I, I teach a master class on the internet <laughs> you know it's like you know it's sort of like uh you know like the character like the like the, the the characters in um raising arizona you know yep. it's all about who you know and why bother you know like there's a certain kind of thing and spreading the gospel to the people who were watching pro wrestling you know, mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. UFC and that kind of stuff that you shouldn't bother to vote for your favorite celebrity, i.e. Donald Trump, because the system's pre-rigged is really just the most perniciously stupid psychological marketing for a political campaign, but, um, or a party or a way to run a democracy. But what do I know? I did want to ask you about the California stuff real quickly. Yeah. Um, I think it was Gerald Seib had a piece touches on stuff that you and I have talked on quite a bit um, in terms of how like, you know, the whole Latinx nah. latte liberal kind of stuff doesn't actually appeal to yeah. Hispanics. 
particularly yeah. working class Hispanic. And anyway, he, he says it was a good piece because it, it in insofar as it was one of those canaries in the coal mine, because he's one of these guys who talks to a lot of Democrats who tell you stuff that we've been saying for a long time. And they're actually worried that the real divide now is between it. You know, it, it's that same educational divide that uh, that divides whites right. is also affecting Hispanics. Um, and the numbers in California were not disastrous, but, you know, but puny. Uh, just, they were puny. Right. But one of the points you know, that side makes, which I think is a good one, is that you can afford to underperform with Hispanics in California if you're a Democrat. Yeah. You, you can't in North Carolina, right? No. There are places where... Or Texas. Or Texas. There are places Florida. where those tiny margins of Hispanics uh, in Georgia, too, you know, are what, you know, put you over the top. And if they underperform, you're kind of screwed. Same thing with, you know, the, obviously the African-American vote. You know, if if when you rely on getting 90% of the African-American vote, but only 60% of the African-American vote turns out, you're screwed. Um, um, where do you come down on all this? Do you see, do you think that the working class is the class divide actually turning? It's fascinating to me just on a theoretical level. And I know we weren't going to get into the, 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 the fancy talk, but it's fascinating to me that, that at the very moment, the party that has historically been obsessed with class, the Democrats, they now are obsessed with race yeah, and, yeah, yeah. No, no, and the Republicans yeah. are becoming obsessed with class. And I don't think they've always been obsessed with race. I mean, I know lefties think they have been, but, right. um, some but, I'm sure, but yes, some, sure. Most. Yeah. But a bit, but you know, anyway, my point is, is that this great intersectional ba theoretical battle that has defined the left has now sort of like a giant piece of Arctic ice has floated off out of their orbit. And, it leaves people like Bernie Sanders without the vocabulary all of a sudden. Yeah. And, um, and, and at least the Republican party that doesn't know how to talk about this class stuff properly, except in terms of like cribbing country music lyrics. But if you could in fact get a trans racial or pan racial or pan ethnic or whatever the right term is working class party, I'm not in favor of the Republican party being that, but, um, that would really just sort of change all of our assumptions about politics and kind of leave the Democrats in a weird place too. So the, if the Republicans are trying to rebuild the new deal coalition, uh, centered on, uh, poor whites and working class whites, if that's the Republican project currently, the democratic project, and we've talked about this before is to rebuild the Eisenhower coalition, <laughs> uh, which is educated, affluent suburbanites and black voters. Right. Right. Um, that's the, that, that was what, that, that's who liked Ike. Um, and for, I put, let me put it this way uh, and let me kill off whatever last listener was had clung through our discussion of religious terminology I will now I will now I will now ruin them with this, which is here's why Rui Teixeira is like <laughs> Francis Fukuyama. Uh, so Francis Fukuyama's end of history book was we were all told that he had blown it and that he was so wrong about what was going to happen in the world after the Cold War. Uh, but he was overinterpreted. He was misinterpreted and overinterpreted. And people uh, said that he said things he didn't. Rui Teixeira wrote a book with John Judas that was real comforting to Democrats after the 2004 defeat, the emerging Democratic majority. And it said, don't worry, the old white people are going to die. The future is younger and less white. 
and people who are younger and less white are Democrats. So take take heart. Uh, little did they know, and when Barack Obama got elected in 2008, it confer, it seemed to confirm this belief, right? It is happening. America's non-white, multi-ethnic, da-da-da-da future uh, is arriving, and the old, white, dead Republican Party is gone. What happened, what's happening underneath that, though, is that Democrats have, understandably, for hopeful reasons on their own behalfs, overstated how solid a block Hispanic voters are going to be for them. And they've done it from the beginning of the, as soon as uh, the Hispanic vote in the United States sort of reached a critical mass uh, of being a large enough block to really take seriously, when they started to rival black voters uh, for their share of the electorate, you know, uh, get into the mid to high single digits and it's, and it's happening. When that happens, uh, Democrats say, here we go. But in truth, if you peeled even those numbers back, you would see huge differences in voting patterns between Hispanic voters of different backgrounds, of different incomes, of different uh, countries of ancestral origin, uh, and of different geographical locations. Uh, a Hispanic voter in South Florida is different than a Hispanic voter in Central Florida, who is different than a Hispanic voter in South Texas uh, versus Dallas uh, versus Arizona versus California, on and on and on. And that's good right? Uh, that's very good. That points to assimilation. That points to the same thing that happened uh, with the Ellis Island uh, immigrants of the turn of the previous century, that their politics were predictable at the beginning and got less predictable as they went on. When people were looking at Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez's uh, uh, in that said, tax the rich, and everybody was either, everybody was having their a predetermined uh, response. Look around at the staff. Look around at the staff of the Met Gala. They're all wearing masks. It was very Handmaid's Tale vibe. It was really interesting. They're all standing around. And if you look at them, a lot of those folks are Hispanic. Yeah. Who do you suppose was serving Gavin Newsom at the French Laundry? Uh, I doubt that it was a Scots-Irish hillbilly like me. Uh, it was probably somebody Hispanic uh, doing service work in California. Yeah, although at and, the French Laundry, it might have been someone with a master's in French poetry. Oh, wait, wait. It could it could have been someone with a double sommelier PhD also. Yeah, okay, I mean the tips uh, at the French Laundry are probably solid. But my my point your being, point is well taken. Yes, my point my point being, and by the way, don't let my mocking of it ever interfere with me getting a reservation there if I ever were to get the chance. Uh, but the 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 truth is i understand when i see in washington dc who has to wear a mask all the time or who feels like they have to wear a mask all the time and who doesn't like me uh when i see that who the 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 burden is 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 disproportionately falling on hispanic americans what's that going to do that's going to engender resentment. When the mayor of San Francisco says, no, I wasn't wearing a mask because I was feeling the spirit. And she expects the people who work for her to continue to show up for work, swaddled, uh, their faces swaddled. That's going to engender resentment. And what Democrats uh, have to understand is to be the party of the elite, which is what they're becoming, to be the party, to supplant the Republican Party as the party of the broad elite, there's going to be class friction inside your own party, and it's going to create opportunities for the other side. So I very much agree with you and the premise that 
for Republicans, they the the future for the Republican Party as it is currently headed is to be a a fiscally liberalish, socially conservative working man's party, but not a white working man's party. If uh, all of the working man's party, uh, and that's how they become like the Christian Democrats of Germany or other European style, and that and I guess that's really what. <clears throat> the uh, the folks the what do we call them the the the, thr- the throne and altar conservatives uh, th- that's I think really what they're talking about I think one of the reasons that they have such a crush on uh, that nut in Hungary is that that's the the European style of culture politics and culture conservatism is more attractive to them. And that's what they want to emulate. And, you know, we're producing it. That's, that's the direction that we seem to be heading. Yeah. Hungary is the Scandinavia of the, yeah. of the right now, you know, um, or, or the Cuba, depending on which, you know, analogy, <laughs> depending on whether you're talking about Michael Moore or Bernie Sanders. Yes. Yeah. Um, all right. So I want to, I want to switch gears a little bit, but just do you, so one of the, the, problems i have with a lot of i was going to say left-wing historiography but in and in political analysis but frankly there's so much of it on the right these days what i have a problem with a lot of analysis is where people take something they don't like going on right or something they disagree with and reverse engineer to show that it was planned by somebody right and as both you and i know we've discussed many times Nobody plans anything like, like no one's in charge. No one's running the show. You should be happy about that. Um, but, um, um, I should say nobody successfully plans anything. Right. If, if, if the, if the president of the United States in cahoots with members of the central intelligence agency can't rob, uh, the democratic campaign headquarters out of an office building in Northwest Washington, DC, I kind of doubt we fake the moon landing. Right, exactly. And so this decision by the big segments of the GOP to be weird, I mean, it's, it's not that everyone in the GOP is anti-vax or anything like that. And like, you don't, certainly Mitch McConnell isn't, but there is this weird anti-anti-vax yeah, yeah, yeah. thing going on. And, and I have my own theories about some of it. Um, but is there a political angle? Is there an interest here that starts with people in power doing something? Or is this all downstream and another example of how the GOP is actually afraid of its own voters and just panders to them? I mean, is there, is there, some, is there some agency on the part of, of Republican officials or planners to create this stuff or are they, is it all reactive? Well, who, what is this GOP you speak of? Yeah. Fair uh, enough. I, I am, I am not aware that either political party in the United States, the Democrats certainly to a greater degree have more core there that they have more and they have the white house, which makes, which makes it very different. But I look at the Republican party as scattered tribes, right? I see yeah. the Republican party as as very coalitional, uh, and it's as scattered tribes. I, you know, Mitch McConnell 
and, you know, Mitch McConnell would probably like to shoot Josh Hawley uh, out of a cannon. Uh, you know, there is deep, it, it, the, the divisions are deep and, and there isn't a, a coherent thing. But, Do you know what I learned from Josh Hawley yesterday? Oh boy. You can't spell pandemic without dem and you can't spell democrat without dem coincidence did he say that yes he did he tweeted that it was amazing it was beautiful it was well like they, i tell you what <laughs> go ahead no i mean like i said i was like congrats dude you're like a character from a dan brown novel you cracked the code <laughs> if you're if it, you know i'll put it this way there are i'm sure people in missouri who voted for josh hawley who would roll their eyes at that and you know whatever life's about trade-offs uh but I am if if you like it and you dig it and and you found if you like that tweet and you were like yeah that's right uh, whatever Democrats if you did it you deserve what you get uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. you de- you deserve you deserve Josh Hall you remember the Onion headline in 2016 had a big picture of Ted Cruz and it said come on America admit it Ted Cruz is the president you deserve <laughs> and 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 to a certain extent like you know. America is getting what it deserves. Uh, we have uh, encouraged, we have demanded political dysfunction, and we get it. We have demanded uh, dumb tribal politics, and we get them. And that's and that's sort of where we are on the vaccine question. I think overwhelmingly, it is pandering, 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 pandering. And the worst kind. So, like, look, if you take your medical advice from Joe Rogan then you get what you deserve. That's, you know, that's, this is, I'm sorry to say, but if, if you, if, if a guy who hosted fear factor, uh, is your go-to source for medical advice, there you go. Um, but there's a special place. And, and this is also a cousin to election denialism. There's this other group of people who are quote, just asking questions. I'm just asking questions. I'm just seeding doubt around this issue. I don't have an answer. I don't have a response, but I'm just seeding doubt around this thing. So there are people who, who use uh, tricky language around the 2020 election and say, oh yeah, it was stolen or, oh yeah, it was rigged. Well, what did you mean? Well, big tech and the liberal news media, blah, and you're like, right. Uh, okay. Those you're, you're, you're stealing several bases here. Right. That's not what that, that's not what that means. And There's around a new the book pan- on that coming out in October, I believe, but go on. I'm sorry. I, 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 uh, I'm sure there are many new books coming <laughs> yeah, out yeah. that will, that will echo that. Uh, the, on the other hand, with the pandemic, you have people like Rand Paul, you have people like Tucker Carlson, you have others who are saying, well, I'm not telling you what to do. I'm just asking questions around the vaccine. And we come back to the same thing over and over and over again, which is too many opinions too often expressed because there's too much void to fill, right? The internet and cable news offer a limitless dump in which it, that must be constantly refilled every day in order to produce the profit targets. Uh, and, and this is why I tell everyone, I'll, I'll do my second shameless dispatch plug. <laughs> when I give speeches now and people say, well, whatever can we do about our terrible media and all of the garbage that's in it? And I said, well, you are, you're getting what you pay for. So if you, if you want a better content, you shouldn't just be subscribed to the dispatch, which you should be, but you should also be subscribed to a local news outlet, at least one. And you should probably be subscribed to a national newspaper of your choice, maybe a magazine. Like it should be part of your budget because free news, the, the, the fantasy that free news could work that we fell into in the 1990s 
has proven totally false. Free news is not going to do it. People have to pay if they want good content. So I find that other than a subscription to the dispatch, one of the highest, best uses of my information dedicated dollars is to go to the shoeshine guy at the <laughs> at Union Station and drop 10 bucks on him once a month and be like, what do you, what do you hear? What do you know? Yeah. yeah. What's, what's the scuttlebutt? What's the skinny? Um, you're, doing, do, you're doing shoe leather reporting with a shine on the shoes. There you go. So like, uh, you don't need to comment about this because I know you're not on Twitter much, but uh, there was a clip of um, uh, Tucker Carlson uh, last night saying that the mandate, to, the vaccine mandate for the military is really an attempt to purge the military ranks of sincere Christians. No. Yes. Sincere Christians, several other things. And my favorite no, was. Not. Yes, he did. Yes, he did. And high testosterone men. That's wait a. He said, <laughs> "Wait, no, 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 no. Oh, wait, I, no, 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 no. I'm going to find it for you because that, that's the kind of thing. Maybe we'll put in the pure audio." Um, oh my gosh! Okay. Uh, get me, get me, Colonel uh, Jack Ripper on the phone immediately because they are stealing our vital bodily fluids. So, military suicide is an actual crisis that the Pentagon might want to address. Lloyd Austin might want to look into that. But no, that would get the Democratic Party nothing. The point of mandatory vaccination is to identify the sincere Christians in the ranks, oh my the free thinkers, the men with high testosterone levels, and anyone else who does not love Joe Biden and make them leave immediately. It's a takeover of the U.S. military. Here's how they're oh my it. gosh. This show is just it's a takeover of the U.S. military. That's terrible. That may be the worst thing I've heard him say. That is, that is, that makes me so sad that, oh my gosh, that is, so you combine an attack on the military uh, and you combine that with saying that only, therefore, low testosterone, uh, non-believers. And insincere Christians, right. In, yeah, non-believers and weak men would take the vaccine. Uh, that's terrible that is really 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 awful and let me tell you something else that is the sign of the kind of decay inside conservatism uh it speaks to uh the the fact that fox would put that on tv right roger ailes would have blown several gaskets if he had heard somebody talking about the feminizing of the american military on fox uh, that would have been uh, that would have been a big deal, but I guess that's I guess that's where we are now. Um, the the that kind of reckless, you know. Here here's the thing, and you you really have gotten me thinking about this in recent episodes, um, which is if the problem we really have is too many elites, if the problem that we really have is a surfeit of elites fighting over who who can dominate. Uh, and which which team of elites, the red elites or the blue elites, uh, will get to dominate. If if that is where we are, it comes with a, a dangerous other component, which is it lowers the standards by which elites must hold themselves. Tucker Carlson is obviously an elite. It is it is definitional by his background, by his education, by his position. All of these things point to the fact that he should be and and. Not and being an elite should mean being a leader, right? <clears throat> and 
this provocative question asking and this insinuation stuff, uh, that's, that is really bad. And seeing what he's doing, seeing what JD Vance is doing, seeing what people who are supposed to be leaders, right? Because of their accomplishments, because of their intellects, because of their education, the people who are supposed to be leaders who just, who not just, but who seem to be very content only to be rabble rousers. Uh, that's a, that's a big problem. Yeah. I mean, I, I mean, I got into a huge, dumb Twitter thing last night. I know that there's some redundancies there. Um, and uh, uh, because earlier in the day, Jake Tapper tweeted something that Brett Bear said on Special Report last night. And I got no problem with people saying this. They said, you know, yesterday we passed the number of dead people from COVID than died from the Influ- the the influenza of 1917 whatever and um and when jake tweeted that i wrote i responded to him um get ready for a lot of well actually um our population is much bigger replies and yeah, which would be true and, which is true which is true and i probably shouldn't have spelt actually a c k s h u l l y which is a way to heap scorn on things but the thing is, is like, I got no problem with people adjusting for population. I do it in columns 10 times a year for various points yeah. to make. There's nothing wrong with saying that. But the people who do it are doing it, or not, I shouldn't say the people who are doing it. Many of the people who are doing it sure, sure, are sure. doing it to say this pandemic is no big deal. They're saying right. to say that 600, yeah, you know, let's put it in perspective. 675,000 in 1917 terms is, you know, uh, um, not that bad. And it's like, well, that's still more people as a percentage of population than died in world war one. Was that a trivial war <laughs> I mean, right. in terms of combat deaths? You know, I mean, right. like, the, the, co- the combat deaths of the civil war, uh, uh, out of the percentage of the American population today, uh, would be far, far less than they were in 1865 comma. However, it would still suck. It would yeah. still, it would still, it would still be ungood as a percentage of a population. The number of, Americans who died in Afghanistan in 1800, that would be like 14 people or something. I mean, like, right. who cares? I mean, I, the point is to just know to mark this kind of thing. And it, it dawned on me as I started getting beaten up from all these people, you know, the Project Veritas people started showing me these clips of how they found someone who works at HHS who oh, said Lord. bad things about the vaccine as if that proves that the vaccine is like fake and they're brave truth tellers and Right. Blah, 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 blah. We found a we found a guy drunk at a bar hitting on a chick and he said this stupid <laughs> thing. You're like, oh, OK, cool. And um, it's like at some point early in the pandemic when Richard Epstein and Bill Bennett and a bunch of people were saying it's just the flu. It's not going to be any worse right. than the flu. And they got completely debunked on all of that. And they kind of shut up about yeah. it for a long time. But this vestigial thing of just n- refusing to believe that the pandemic is bad you know the head of the claremont institute threw all these scare quotes at me about you know how uh how why i should why i believe all of these numbers like like it's really you know why are you so you know trusting in the government to believe that this quote-unquote 675k number is real blah 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 and like first of all I'm fine with the idea that maybe they got the numbers wrong, but if you know anything about the sure. epidemiology, the number of excess deaths is much greater than the number of deaths attributed to COVID. 
And even if the deaths from COVID are half of what they've right. been, that's still six, seven times more than the it's just the flu crowd said they would be. And well, that's really it, bad because it's hundreds of thousands of dead Americans. Well, you know, for, first of all, never tweet. But uh, the se- second of all, um, I uh, to to just lay down my priors, all praise and honor to the great Stephen G. Smith, uh, an editor, my editor at the Washington Examiner, who taught me a lot of things. But one of which was don't use unanchored statistics ever. Don't ever use unanchored statistics. And Jake Tapper used an unanchored statistic, which is compared to what? How many, what, right? So you could do it just as like, here's a, here's a somber milestone that we've now surpassed the raw number. And he's not wrong, but of course it would be, but Twitter does not invite more context. Um, so that having been said, then you get to the minimizers and the quibblers and the, well, it's actually this. And I guess the problem that we have is that we are so blindly drunk on partisanship and that partisan identity has supplanted has supplanted so many other important understanding things that we are if if you hate monocausality mm-hmm. we are uh in a uh, a mono culture of a different kind too which is everything that comes over the transom has to be determined as is this a red thing or a blue thing is this good for the reds or bad for the blue who you know who who is helped or hurt by this and guess what? Most things don't or aren't, or at least not in simple, clear ways, right? Um, is fighting the pandemic a Democratic thing or a Republican thing? Neither, both, I don't know. Um, and we can have different and varied opinions about how to respond to the pandemic. Uh, but instead, what happens or what is happening is people who express concern about the pandemic, people who favor Look, I think the Democrats and masks are crazy, right? Mm-hmm. I, I think the mask thing is nuts. And when you see the people going around Washington, D.C. with their masks on outside, you're like, if you're vaccinated and you are walking around out of doors, there is no conceivable reason to be wearing a mask on your face. It's just not. Now, I can see if you're in close quarters, you're worried about the Delta variant, but D.C.'s hospitals aren't overwhelmed. Things are actually going pretty well in D.C. So what's the deal? And the deal is they become shibboleths. They become they become symbols and people die. Right. The consequence on the right side of this equation of this equation is how many people have died in America? I don't know what the number is. No one will ever really know what the number is. But there is some number of people in the United States of America who are dead now because of their partisan attitudes and because they oppose taking reasonable precautions like getting a vaccinate a safe and effective vaccine uh because they wanted to to deny uh joe biden a victory and did not want to be part of i don't think it's a huge number but there's some number of people who are dead today whose whose children are orphans whose wives are widows who are that way because of partisan politics and that's sick that's crazy and you could say the same thing about the number of kids who lost out on education. You could say that about the number of kids who suffered terribly, unnecessarily throughout the pandemic because Democrats were holding on to the shibboleths of their own. And uh, my hope, honestly, Jonah, out of all of this, out of all of this stuff, out of the terrible 2020 election and its aftermath, out of the pandemic, out of all of these things, is that Americans have will 
proceed with a better understanding that failure is a possibility and that there are consequences to allowing and and looking the other way as crazy partisans exploit everything for their own advantages or to the disadvantage of the other. I think that that my hope, and I think there's some evidence of it, uh, my hope is that this kind of insane negative partisanship will be worse received by normal voters, which still happen to be the plurality of the American electorate. Um, and potential remnant listeners. But um, yeah, yeah, I, yeah. I, I know I promised I'd get you out by a certain time, so I'm, I have one last, I think it's one last question. Um, I keep hearing from people in the know, some of these shoeshine guys um, and whatnot, <laughs> that um don't you wear like canvas hawaiian shoes though well that's the weird thing is like i'm wearing sandals and i'm still (laughs) sitting there you know uh i mean i think blackface is wrong but black feet black foot yeah that's fine um uh but uh was i gonna ask oh and it's funny the the way we talk about the kevin mccarthy the 22 2022 midterms and all that kind of stuff how mccarthy is determined to be speaker determined to be speaker blah 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 blah. and yet there's very sincere scuttlebutt on among hill types that under no circumstances will trump let kevin mccarthy become speaker um that he's still really pissed at him that the freedom caucus guys know it that he won't you know that he won't have the votes to become speaker, it's not like Kevin McCarthy can rely on Democrats <laughs> to vote for him. Um, and so you only need, like, depending on what their margins are, but let's say they have a 10-seat, 20-seat majority, you only need, you know, like 10 defectors to say, screw you, I'm voting with Trump. And um, what do you think about that? Do you think, if, if the Republicans win, do you think Kevin McCarthy becomes the uh, Speaker of the House? Yeah, probably. Uh, Kevin McCarthy is unwise to trust Donald Trump uh, but so is Jim Jordan. Um, the idea that Donald Trump here, here's what we know. Donald Trump is an astonishingly selfish human being. What? He is the, he, I hate to break it to you, but, uh, in, in a, a presidency that has included, uh, 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 galaxy level, uh, solipsists like Bill Clinton, uh, Barack Obama, uh, people who thought the sun rose and set in their pants. Uh, that these people uh, cannot hold a candle to the solipsism of Donald Trump. And he will do whatever he thinks is good for him, uh, whether that be financially, whether that be in terms of power, whether that be in terms of reputation, whether it be in terms of notoriety at every turn. Uh, So he could totally burn Kevin McCarthy, but he's not going to burn Kevin McCarthy if he can't beat Kevin McCarthy. So if it looks like Kevin McCarthy is going to win, and you can see this with Trump's uh, endorsements. So there are some places where he just throws an endorsement away on some cuckoo bird uh, who uh, he believes is on his side. This is the case in like, who's Trump going to endorse in Arizona? Whoever best, uh, whoever uh, uh, loved the uh, the audit the most. Uh, whoever tried to to steal uh, that state's electoral votes for him the hardest, uh, but in other places, you know, when he when he backed uh, Luther Strange for Senate in Alabama, he wasn't doing it because he and Luther Strange, who could not be more different uh, in terms of their demeanors and their character and all of that stuff, uh, he didn't do it because he liked Luther Strange. He did it because he thought it would be the win and would make him look good. So I, I think Trump will do whatever. 
Here's what I, I know. The last time we talked here, uh, I would have told you, yeah, the Republicans uh, are probably, probably can't help but win a narrow majority in the House, right? It probably, it, the historical average since Reagan is 28 seats for the party in power, to, for the party in power to lose in the first primary. Republicans are only going to need four or five. So here you go, right? It, sh- it shouldn't be a problem. But I was thinking, but it'll be, they'll get 12, right? And they'll have a, a majority as small as the Democrats do. But the Democrats are creating a scenario in which they could get shellacked, right? They have set themselves up for a, a true calamity, right? So they've got, the, the Democrats could walk out of this autumn having failed to pass a popular uh, infrastructure spending package that has bipartisan support, uh, voting for, but failing to obtain an unpopular, which I guarantee you will be unpopular once the details are, once the Republicans shove the details up everybody's nostrils uh, for six months, uh, $3.5 trillion social welfare package, and have a government shutdown and bump the debt ceiling. And when I say bump, I mean get right up to it and then have mm-hmm. to do a stopgap measure at the end, and people will be talking about trillion-dollar coins again and all of that flummery. So the Democrats have, and this coming on the heels of the shambolically incompetent uh, retreat from Afghanistan, that these things add up to for a suburban voter who has unease about the direction of the Republican Party uh, and associates the Republican Party with Trump and anti-vaccinism and all those things, the Democrats are washing a lot of that away for those persuadable voters who decide. Because remember, midterm elections, for the reasons that we did, we talked about earlier, midterm elections are are the suburbs, right? Mm-hmm. Those are high propensity voters because they're high education uh, and high income. So the richer you are and the better better educated you are, the more likely you are to vote. And the the lower the turnout, the more those voters will be, imp- the more important that those voters will be. And so the Democrats are really doing a number on themselves right now. And it's, it's, it, is a, 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 it is appallingly bad practice of politics. And I have watched it with real wonderment. And now they're saying, well, the Republicans won't raise the debt ceiling. Let me tell you something. Whatever you think about the Republicans' unwillingness to raise the debt ceiling uh, for money that, by the way, they voted to borrow in, in the past, there's, there's more than a little churlishness in that. But the Democrats can raise the debt ceiling on their own. They can do it. They just don't want to do it because right. they'll lose more votes on their reconciliation bill if they put it in there. Manchin doesn't want to vote for $3.5 trillion as it is. And if you say, oh, yeah, and we're putting a $5 trillion increase right, right. Uh, to the debt on there, he's not going to vote for it either. So if you're McCarthy now, you're saying, maybe we're going to win 30 seats. Maybe we're going to win 35 seats. Maybe it's going to be big, right? Maybe we're going to have big numbers. And at that point, you can afford to burn. Like the, the worst news for Jim Jordan, uh, other, that, other than that jackets are required on the House floor, <laughs> uh, is that. Or that they're going to put cameras in the lo- wrestling locker room. A big, whoa, whoa, yeah. Uh, The the worst news for Jim Jordan uh, is that if the Republicans have a smash success in midterms, his power will be dramatically diminished because where will the new Republicans come from? They will come from swing districts that are currently represented by moderate Democrats and would then be represented by moderate Republicans. So it would actually be a diminution of his power. Fair enough. I... I'm not predicting that that because you know part of the problem is wish casting, and I so would right, like right, to right. see 
Kevin McCarthy not be allowed, Moses-like not be allowed into the promised land. Um, and he ain't, he ain't Moses, he's Aaron. Don't kid yourself. <laughs> um, uh, but uh, uh, you're right. If he gets 30 seats, then then that gives him some maneuvering room right. and all that. But uh, but I think it's a far more I think it's a far more possible thing than the the punditry that we're seeing these days and how 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 the hill is covered is like no one's talking about this being a lift for for McCarthy and I, I suspect right. that it is one. But um, time will tell. What the 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 as what's his name, who's, who's probably going to be the next senator from Ohio, or who may be the next senator of, from Ohio, Tim Ryan. Uh, he said, well, I may, I may challenge that Nancy Pelosi. She, <laughs> I may come out there. I may do that. I've had enough of her liberal California ways. We got to bring heartland moderation uh, to the speaker's chair. And it's like, yeah, but then I did the math and I wasn't going to win. So I decided not to do it because it would make me look like a big dumb loser if I tried. So... <laughs> Look, McCarthy is not good as a as a vote whipper or in control of his party. Pelosi runs circles around him on that stuff. But one thing that Kevin McCarthy is really, really, really good at is sucking up to people and telling them everything that they want to hear. Uh, and that guy needs that guy needs a whole nother face so he has more sides of his mouth to talk out of. And he will tell a do a group of donors one thing, and then he'll tell a group of activists another thing, and another thing, and another thing, and the 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 truth is very few people would really want to be speaker of the house they think they'd want to be speaker of the house but can you imagine how miserable jim jordan would be as speaker of the house well also the fact that his term as speaker of the house if somehow magically it would happen would last about 7 days before yeah. there was a mass mutiny and he was removed yeah i mean he 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 would be the lieutenant niedermeyer of uh, uh yes yes the, as as you say the the uh, as you allude to often the problem in america today is we have two minority parties. We have two yeah. parties that want to be in the minority and don't want to govern. Uh, they want the click. They want rage clicks and they want to get to complain constantly. But nobody wants to put on a blue suit, comb their hair and go do their job. Yeah, I have such a hard time explaining this basic point to liberal mainstream journalist beltway types that that. I remember I first struggled with this about explaining that Barack Obama had as many cultural signifiers that said he was part of their tribe as George W. Bush said that he was part of his tribe. But because yeah. all the people who work in the Beltway and in New York aren't part of George W. Bush's tribe, they saw it. They could see right. how he was speaking weird and dog whistling and all these kinds of things. And they couldn't see it with Obama. They just thought Obama was just talking, that he was just right. one of them. And the same thing applies, like, I don't, it's amazing how the gatekeepers of a lot of political reporting don't understand that AOC, she may not seem as crazy as Marjorie Taylor Greene or Lauren Bobbitt or other, those kinds of people, but she is, has as many cultural signifiers, tribal, you know, insignia, including, you know, yeah. wearing slogans and all these shibboleths she is seems as otherworldly and other culturally as as you know jim jordan certainly does to people in you know who aren't part of that tribe like and the and she's also as unreasonable <laughs> as a lot of the crazy republicans are in terms of public policy but the people who cover this stuff 
fish don't know they're wet. They don't know she's crazy. And it's well, a fascinating cultural divide. And just so that I make sure that my paycheck clears next time, let us give uh, glory, laud, and honor to the great Yuval Levin yes. uh, to, to say, what we need is a Congress that works. What we need is a Congress that wants to be Congress. Uh, we have a bunch of, as you call it, a parliament of pundits uh, who want to uh, flap their gums about everything, uh, but not do anything. And until we can find a way to punish the kind of incompetent governance, but very effective pandering uh, that these folks engage in. And to, to just put it in the terms of what we were just talking about, if Democrats scuttle Joe Biden's agenda what a, in, in, uh, in, in the whole and find themselves uh, going off of fiscal cliffs, why will it be so? It will be so because of performative politics, because these people like uh, Ayanna Presley, who said the Senate parliamentarian says that uh, immigration is not uh, a budget issue. Well, we can't let these old rules hold us back anymore. We must just define everything as we say it is. Yeah. And uh, until we get to a point where there are consequences for members of Congress on the left and the right, uh, from from the Presleys to the Gates uh, and all that uh, that being in Congress is a job. Uh, not a not a station uh, until until we can somehow beat that into their brains. We're going to keep having trouble. So cheer up for the worst is yet to come. Amen. Christopher Starwalt, thank you so much for being on. Um, obviously, we'll have you back because you know <laughs> I have I have control over your medication. Um, and uh, it's <laughs> I always- get a tablet. I get a pellet every time I press the bar. <laughs> um, um, delightful to have you here. And um, uh, we're going to grab a meal soon. I think we've been trying to figure this out on the calendar. So um, um, we will. Um, I'll tell you what my shoeshine guy has to say when I see you. <laughs> Thank you, my friend. All right. So Brother Starwalt has left the building. A studio conversation, ethereal plane of astral projection and ectomorphic conversation in the digital neuromancer space. Um and uh, one quick correction, uh, Ryan uh, pointed out to me after we finished recording, I said that Josh Hawley did, said that you can't spell pandemic without Dem, um, and it was actually uh, Josh Mandel of Ohio, not Hawley of, of, of Missouri. I apologize for getting that wrong. Some people will be more forgiving than other people of my confusing of the two. I leave that to be adjudicated for another day. Um, and beyond that, uh, so we had a we had a very exciting theory about who we were going to have for our 400th episode. That did not happen. Um, and so we are casting about. But I want to be very, very, very clear as uh, my colleagues and uh, co-workers on this podcast will attest, I have come to despise the utterly arbitrary um, insistence that if your episode ends with two zeros if your episode number ends with two zeros never mind three zeros that you must have some boffo guest um on that will uh send people you know racing down the, the fire poles to to listen to the latest podcast it is in many ways what what the historian daniel borston called a pseudo event and yes, I am saying this in part because I haven't figured out how to have someone 
Um, I, because, because the person, the people that I wanted to have on can't do it. Um, but also because I resent the, 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 the extra burden and expectation that's involved in it. And, um, so I don't know what we're going to do for the next episode. Um, I think it'll be good or great regardless. And you should not hold it against anybody that we have on or don't have on that. It happens to be the 400th episode. And frankly, given the events of episode 11, one could argue that the next episode is in fact, episode three. 99 um but i won't get into that because it gets very jesuitical very quickly um and beyond that please uh really do come by the dispatch and check out our stuff if you can sign up to be a, a paid member of the dispatch community that would be wonderful um would really appreciate it uh and you know uh, just because chris darwalt said wonderful things about the dispatch doesn't mean they're not true um and beyond that, I got nothing. So I will see you next time. Nine! This is a podcast! Yeah.